Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andy Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Chazinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that's my fact. My fact this week is that Guantanamo Bay has a gift shop. Pretty inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Can, do we know if the prisoners can buy gifts? Is it like they get let out what, once do, a week? What, they sell <laughs> files and they sell <laughs> wire cutters and things like that. Now, I've got a list of some of the things they do sell. So Fidel Castro standing on a boombox uh, with text reading rockin' in Fidel's backyard. Uh, you can get golf balls. You can get candles. You can get a plush banana rat, which is a, a type of rat that they have on Guantanamo Bay. So there's banana rats everywhere on Guantanamo Bay. Are there? Um, they're otherwise known as hootier. You would normally call them hootier, but they call them banana rats. But do you know why they're called banana rats? No. The, uh, they're they, shaped like a banana. They, <laughs> they eat bananas. No. They're radioactive. They're very easy to peel. They emit... What is it? Yeah, yeah, antimatter. antimatter. No. But they, they don't really have legs. <laughs> Oh dear. Uh, No, the reason is um, that they are called banana rats because their feces look like small versions of the fruit. Cool. Wow. That's cool. That's very interesting. Yeah. Just wow. a fact. Yeah. So I wouldn't like to be named after the shape of my poo. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Not up for that. Well, you'd just be called poo, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you could be like raisins or skyscraper. Skyscraper. <laughs> <laughs> just. Could be anything, couldn't it? Um, so, uh, oh, well, that's a cool fact. I really like that. Um, they're, uh, they also, they have uh, teddy bears uh, that you have crop T-shirts, and they read, it don't get mo better than this. Get mo okay, being yeah, the uh, yeah, yeah. abbreviation. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. They got things like Baskin Robbins there, the ice cream shop. They got McDonald's. There's a Subway, KFC, Pizza Hut. Yeah, I just I, I really like when you hear about military compounds or places. When you hear something out of place, Andy has a great fact um, about the CIA. It's the Starbucks. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that um, the Starbucks in uh, Langley, Virginia, at the headquarters of the CIA. Uh, the baristas are not allowed to write customers' names on the cups. Imagine if you went to Starbucks and they said, what name is it? And you said, Skyscraper. (laughs) (laughs) That's an unusual name. Where do you get that? (laughs) Um, So Guantanamo Bay is on um, Cuba, obviously. It is. But um, it's rented from the Cuban government. Okay. Except that uh, Fidel Castro says that uh, he never cashes the checks. He says he's cashed one of them once, and it was by mistake. It's $4,000 a month. Do you reckon he's holding them all up, and then one day he's going to cash them all and hopefully bankrupt America? <laughs> he has, isn't there a rumour that he stores them all in a drawer in his office desk? Yes, he showed them off in a TV interview once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and really? he says that the only one that got cashed was in 1959 during the actual Cuban Revolution when it was a bit confusing and you know, <laughs> um, a mistake in the payroll department or something like that. Why but was he doing the banking? <laughs> Why is Fidel? <laughs> <laughs> I got really confused on my bank run that time. <laughs> but he also he also claims that they, the checks are made out to the Treasurer General of the Republic, which is apparently a position that ceased to exist after the revolution in 1959. So oh. this is a pre-revolutionary arrangement that. Clearly, they haven't updated them on. Um, Guantanamo also has an Irish bar. Does it? Yeah, it has an Irish bar called O'Kelly's Irish Bar, uh, which claims to be the only Irish bar on communist soil. Uh, And so I thought I'd see if I could find any other Irish (laughs) bars on communist soil. 
and there is um, Hooli's Irish Bar in Guangzhou, China, Gary's Irish Pub in Vientiane in Laos, uh, <laughs> and Bernie's Irish Bar and Restaurant in Saigon. Oh, well so done. So it's lying. They're lying, yeah. A lie coming out of Guantanamo. Who <laughs> <laughs> would have thought it? Imagine if that's what takes them down. <laughs> um, you know there's a version of Guantanamo Bay on Second Life? Oh, is there really? Yeah, yeah. A couple of activists built it to show people what it is like there, basically. So it's because obviously you're not normally allowed to go there. You, it's forbidden for people who are not in the military, or, or yeah. you know, with very few exceptions. So they have they have constructed one. People can volunteer to experience virtual prison there, to see what it's like. Wow. Yeah. Is that? Do you see what it's like? Do you think? No. Obviously, <laughs> it's, there's only so much you can really experience from your home. But yeah. it's, it shows you sort of the layout and it shows you what exactly mm. kind of what happens. Yeah. Um, can I tell you one more thing about Second Life? Yeah, which yeah. Is that there's an actual prison on Second Life for people who are you know hacking into the the world itself or sort of into the game or being other you know digitally naughty basically. Um, and supposedly it consists of a, just a moonlit field full of corn which goes on forever. And the only things you can do in it, you could, there's a track that you can ride slowly or there's a black and white TV playing a film from 1940 as the only things you can do in Second Life Prison. <laughs> wow. How cool is that? That sounds that great. Really cool. Jimmy Carr, um, so for any overseas listeners, a big comedian in Britain, he did a gig in Second Life. Wow. Yeah, and it was a live gig and during it he's just standing there as a Second Life Jimmy Carr. Yeah. And you know when you play those games like GoldenEye yeah. and you end up just running into the wall and bashing against <laughs> the wall, yeah. a lot of his audience members don't quite know how to stay still. <laughs> so while he's telling jokes, they're just walking past him, smashing into walls, <laughs> flipping over in front of him. That's very funny. Yeah. Um, I was looking into, because I was just thinking of famous gift shops that I know of, and um, one that I went to not too long ago, and I think you can qualify it as a gift shop. It's the Sherlock Holmes shop, and it's in, uh, in Baker Street. And I didn't realize that it's not at 221B Baker Street. When Conan Doyle wrote the Sherlock stories, that didn't exist. That The road didn't go that far up. Mm. Right. And so they've since built this bigger road. There's at a 20, bank there, isn't It there? was Abbey National. So Abbey yeah. National was situated at 221B Baker Street. Um, and as a result, they hired someone to answer all mail to uh, Sherlock Holmes. Really? However, <laughs> yeah. they just wrote back offering them very good personal finance <laughs> notes. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't help you find your wife, but I can help you find a great deal on your insurance. <laughs> uh, but so what ended up happening was uh, in 1990, a blue plaque went up outside the museum saying that that was now 221B. And so mail started going there. And that started a 15-year dispute between Abbey National and the Sherlock Holmes Museum about who was 221B. Uh, right. And now Abbey National is closed and now 221B technically is the museum, despite the fact it's at 239. So are we 221B or not 221B? (laughs) 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 Have you heard this thing about the souvenir coins they've just done for Waterloo? No. It is so cool. Um, So... Belgium wanted to do these special commemorative coins for the Battle of Waterloo, right, with this, there's a famous statue of a lion. um, Yeah. And they wanted to have that on it. And they made 180,000 of these, but France forced them to stop because basically other EU countries get a veto over it, and France is a bit sensitive about Waterloo. So the French said that it will create a bad reaction in France and you shouldn't do this. But the Belgians found a rule, a tiny, tiny rule in the book, saying that any country can issue its own coins if they're in an irregular denomination... Oh. And so they have just made 70,000 2.5 euro coins. Oh, wow. <laughs> with, with, the, with the design they wanted. Oh, cool. Yeah, and you can spend them across can you, Belgium. Can you actually? Yeah, so yeah, they yeah. have monetary value. That's so cool. Yeah. So when the Duke of Wellington died, 
um, all of his locks of hair were cut off to make souvenirs for people, including the Queen and, you know, like loads and loads of people. Ah. Because um, um, people did used to just take weird souvenirs from all sorts of things, didn't they? It wasn't like in the olden days you wouldn't have gift shops. People would just go and <laughs> nick stuff, basically. Uh, but Mark Twain wrote that when he went to Egypt, all he could hear was the tinkling sound of tack hammers as people chipped away at the monuments. Wow. So he'd just go to the... Uh, pyramids and people would just be taking bits off all the time that's all you could hear really yeah do you know what would be amazing is if the pyramids were actually square (laughs) 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 and And this is just what's left yeah exactly oh i bet that's true is it true that they were covered in marble (laughs) that is true yeah wow that's astonishing imagine seeing them back then yeah so what we see now that used to have a marble casing around it yeah they used to be really shiny so it was like being pebble dashed Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but more classy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I have a thing about souvenirs that are being taken that shouldn't be taken. Oh yeah. So lots of people, when they go to Uluru, uh, formerly Ayers Rock in yep. Australia, will chip off a bit to take home, as with Stonehenge or as with other places or as with the pyramids. But there's an increasing trend of people posting them back because they feel really apologetic, oh, or they wow. suffer bad luck in their life and they think, well, it must be because I took that rock from Uluru, and so they post it back, and they get about one every day. Um, but the thing is, they return to the national park. But they, before they get back to the national park, they are quarantined. Somewhere in Australia, there is a rock quarantine. In case they've caught place. a disease while they've been abroad. <laughs> Basically, in case they have, as the, they say on the website, they say the threat of micropathogens being introduced by contaminated rocks from elsewhere. Bacteria can um, affect rocks, can't they? Yeah, definitely. Can, yeah, uh, okay. they can change the chemical composition of rocks, definitely. Okay. Huh? But what, what are the, like, what's the fallout if, if you introduced... A rock to Australia. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's a, 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 a spore or something which could wipe out a native plant wow, species. Wow, okay, right. I, I mean, they're just being ultra careful, but I just think that's the yeah. funniest idea. I mean, it's or a the- barren desert <laughs> <laughs> where Uluru is. Or if they've, because they don't like um, non-native species coming in, do they say, what if there's like a fox on the underside of the rock <laughs> yes, yeah. no one's seen? That's true. <laughs> just clinking. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be careful of these kind of things. I'm just imagining they put the rock back on Uluru and then um, go home and then the next day they come and it's disappeared <laughs> <laughs> there's just a note saying suckers <laughs> yours Mr. Fox <laughs> time for fact number two and that is Chazinski uh, yeah my fact is that the Natural History Museum is turning moths gay to stop them destroying the exhibits <laughs> uh, yeah what um, well they've got a moth problem um, they are destroying exhibits in the Natural History Museum. So they, in the Natural History oh. Museum, a lot of like things that have fur or feathers or things like that on it, I think moths are using it. So it's not a lot of these things they can't eat, but they like destroy it and then make little nests out of it. And yeah, so it's a problem. It's destroying the exhibits. And so they are using female hormones. They're covering male moths in female hormones to try and make other male moths attracted to them so that they waste all their shagging time trying to shag another male and <laughs> they fail like to the reproduce. You've only got a certain amount of shagging time that you can do. <laughs> Sorry, I've just spent an hour and a half on that other mail. So uh, <laughs> I um I was reading about because uh, it's not just the Natural History Museum that's had this problem. Mm-hmm. Lots of other museums have this problem, and it turns out that there's one man who they call in to sort out all of their issues, and he's known as Bugman. And his name is David Pinniger. And I don't know if he's being brought in for the Natural History Museum in this case, but he is the man who you bring in when there's a moth problem, when there's any kind of insect problem. 
and he's been giving talks for years. The VNA, he gave a talk a few years ago, which was called Bug, uh, which stood for Beating Unwanted Guests. Nice. So this is this goes back as far it as... Sounds 19- like a talk for the security guards in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a talk given in 1993 at the VNA. So this has been a problem since 1993, and they've been trying to combat it in so many different ways. Yeah. There are lots yeah. of um, fruit fruit growing places um possibly orchards actually now i think about it <laughs> which, which have had the same problem with with moths and they've used the same solution they've also tried uh, turning them gay or sort of because it's not quite turning them gay is it they're still straight but it's yeah. <laughs> disguising males disguising as females it. they the, at the pit rivers museum they did a thing where they had a glue board um and they put the pheromones of an, an equivalent a thousand female moths onto this glue board so all these moths were just going, whoa, <laughs> ladies! And then they were flying that way and Are just getting sure stuck to it. you sure that's a thousand ladies? Because it kind of looks a bit like a glue bot. <laughs> no, you smelled them? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, so, it's such a... It's really funny as an idea. Yeah, it is. I can't believe it. And Dover so, Castle as well, sorry. Oh, yeah. Dover Castle as well had a thing, uh, which was they realized that all these insects, uh, all these moths were being attracted to certain um, uh, wall hangings because the dye that was used in the paintings were mainly crushed insects, and weirdly, that was an attraction to them. Oh. Yeah, they, they, they smelt dead insect, basically, and so they were attracted to that, so they had an issue with that at Dover Castle. Apparently, 85% of male insects engage in homosexual acts, but mostly it's accidental. Um, they just mate in the hope that they're mating with a female, but it doesn't really matter. No. And there are loads of theories as to why. Um, so some people think that it's to practice mating, or some people think it's to dominate other males. Um, but flower beetles, uh, they found that they do this a lot, and they found that it doesn't improve their success rate with females. But if a male leaks semen on another male, and the, that other male later breeds with a female, the female's eggs can be fertilized by the sperm of the male that yeah. she never encountered. And it's uh, called sex by proxy, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, the article about it said that males can inseminate females, quotes, without expending time or energy having sex with them. <laughs> Result. <laughs> <laughs> but it does imply that the males just really want to have sex with the other males. And so they'd rather... Because I read that and I thought, they're expending time and energy mating with a male. Surely you might as well just do it directly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it seems a bit of a roundabout way of doing it. Uh, do you guys know the only other animal where a percentage chooses exclusively to have homosexual sex, even though there are members of the opposite sex available to them? Um, and that's domestic sheep. Oh. And I think it is 8% of male domestic sheep are, will choose to have sex with another male sheep rather than a female. Which is weird, isn't it? What yeah. is weird about um, sheep is that if you're a female sheep and you're, you're going to have sex, what you do is basically stand perfectly still. And then the ram comes and, and mounts you. But if you have two lesbian sheep and they both want to have sex with each other, they naturally will just stand perfectly still. <laughs> so they just kind of stood there kind of looking at each other going, well, are you going to do something or am I? That makes it very difficult to spot lesbian sheep. She's just, she's just not making the first move. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> do they have to get a friend in the end to just lift them up and force them together? <laughs> like, oh, guys, enough of this pussy fitting around. <laughs> I, I was reading about... Uh, Moths, obviously, they're preyed on by bats. That's a, that's a thing you have to watch out for if you're oh, yeah. a moth. They've learned to create a sound which says that they're a different, much more disgusting-tasting moth. Really? Yeah, so they pretend to be the disgusting-tasting moth that they know bats don't go for, and then the bats don't go for them as a result. 
So they mimic incredible. the sound, and as a result, uh, yeah. It would be safer to mimic the sound of like a lion or something, wouldn't it? Just because if you do get a really hungry bat. <laughs> that, but then taking that bit further, that means every animal in the whole world should sound like a lion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why don't they? Okay, but you apart you, from a lion, which should disguise itself as you know an inoffensive clump of grass, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or a bit of Uluru rock. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's here's the thing though. You're, you've hit on something, which is that uh, there is an actual moth called the Asian corn borer who mimics the sound of a bat to freak out females and when they hear it they freeze in fear and because the asian corn borer is terrible at sex it uses this sound to freeze the female so that he can use the opportunity to mate with her hmm. it's rohypnol in the in the it's, moth it's world, the rohypnol of the moth world yeah yeah wow. so here's the thing um you know the word garderobe mm-hmm. it's like a old french word for a toilet, toilet. okay uh, that's where the word wardrobe comes from, mm-hmm. and one theory uh, as to why that um, why that change happened is because you would keep your clothes in a toilet, um, because the smell was so bad it would keep moths away. Really? But also, yeah. all your clothes would smell like a toilet all <laughs> <Yeah>. the time. <laughs> really? I mean, I think it's a theory. I'm not sure it's true. You know how, James, you insist on ordering a panino when you go into a cafe rather than panini? I do indeed. Right. In the same vein, do you also use the garderobe wardrobe thing to excuse the fact that you piss in the wardrobe all the time at home? <laughs> <laughs> I like etymologically speaking, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Nothing wrong. <laughs> okay, time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the word marvelous has fallen in use from 155 times per million 20 years ago to only two times per million today. So every 500,000 words you say, one of them will be marvelous. Wow. If anyone says society isn't in decline, then (laughs) I think we've disproved them here. Um, Yeah, so um, just about language changing and stuff, and it's a bit of a shame. I think the word marvellous is quite a good word, and I think it's a shame we're not using it anymore. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With that kind of um, disappearance that it's like achieving right now, are we going to lose it? Uh, I don't think we'll lose it, but it's just become old-fashioned, really. But it, there, I think there is hope for marvelous because words go up, go up and down, don't they? So the use of the word marvelous had its peak. So it had its peak in 1886, and it's been declining pretty steadily think, since then. I think, except 1918 to 1925, I was looking at a graph, had a big peak suddenly. <laughs> really? Yeah, just like, super marvelous. That was finished. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Things are a bit more marvelous than they were. And then suddenly, ooh, this Hitler guy is looking a little bit, uh, a little bit rowdy for my liking. He's not looking very marvellous, is he? <laughs> <laughs> so marvellous used to be a lot stronger. It used to mean something that caused wonder. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was a lot stronger than... Or marvel, I means. guess. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't steal the meaning of the word wonderful and attribute it to marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> Civil war between the words. Wonderful used to mean marvellous. It calls you marvel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this all comes from um, a thing called the Spoken British National Corpus of 2014, and that's done by Cambridge University Press and Lancaster University, and they take a whole load of um, kind of books and conversations and all that kind of thing, and they work out how often words are, are used. And then there was a load of press releases um, 
one of which I saw this week. Hmm. I'm really suspicious about this um, project that they're on because they've, uh, they're asking for people to donate recorded tapes of their conversations every day and stuff. So they said, we're calling for people to send us MP3 files of their everyday informal conversations in exchange for a small payment. And I th- is this just MI5 kind of being more obvious? Can you record yourself talking about threats to Britain's national security? Because <laughs> a lot of that vocabulary is very specialised and we really need it. <laughs> send it in, we'll give you a fiver and a short in Guantanamo Bay there's a lovely gift shop <laughs> so the, the other uh, conclusions that they came to other words that they said were going in and out of fashion uh-huh. they said that the word cheerio uh, has yet to appear in conversations from this decade which is a bit wow. sad they said that old people still use it but not young ones wow. um, 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 so I was looking you know Google does has this amazing tool which I've just wasted so many hours of my life on where uh, I can't even remember what the URL is but look up um, Google Word Tracker and it tracks the use of words over the last mm. 200 years in all Google books oh, cool. um, and when, when they've you know how often words are mentioned so so the word loser reached its peak in 1807 <laughs> whatever made you think of looking that way <laughs> you knew you were going to be hanging out with us and yet you looked for the loser <laughs> A couple of other good good spikes. So the word happy has been in constant decline since the year 1800 until the year 2000, and then it's been increasing since then. And then the Pharrell song came out. Ooh. Oh, that might have spiked it right up. And Happy Feet, the movie, I reckon it oh, must yeah. bring words back just Possible. by popular movies mm. and songs. Yeah. Must do, right? Um Penis has been in steep decline since 1996. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I used all my shagging time <laughs> off in the early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> is, it, what, is it just that people are using other words? I assume so. It's probably that, yeah, maybe we've diversified in our, you know, in our synonyms. So, Although, actually, we probably haven't, because we've always used countless synonyms for that, haven't we? Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, vagina had a huge spike in 1880. <laughs> in when? In when? 1880. 1880. There was, so, literally, that one year, it was used four times as much as, sort of, before or since, in on headlines? average. Like, well, there was where a would we know music hall song, it, probably? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Mr. Johnson, where's my vagina? I think it was called. <laughs> Very much the Pharrell's happy of its time. <laughs> Does it say? Does it say why it's spiked? It's, it, does, it can't say why. It's literally just a stats site that tracks uses in Google Books. Okay. So I have no idea that's why. Incredible. But, you know, if anyone's in got Google, any theories. In Google Books? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, the Atlantic Beach Theatre and Comedy Club a couple of years ago um, was putting on the vagina monologues, um, but got complaints about using the word vagina, and so renamed it the hoo-ha monologues. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> is there one word that you guys use that is not just used in day-to-day language that you wish would come back, but you do actually use? Uh... Andy, most of the words Andy uses, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there is a word which is re- I do really like, and it's you know megalomania is sort of it being it's sort of insanely thinking you're all powerful and you know yeah. getting. There is a corresponding word called micromania, which is a tendency to constantly belittle oneself oh. isn't that an incredible word yeah because yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very common thing a lot of people you know especially sort of supposedly english people are very very self-deprecating there is a word for it micromania i really like that um <laughs> there are really i've got some good words if you like yeah from, yeah. Uh, from the m section of the dictionary actually one related to moths so macrolepidoptera and this is in the oed uh, they are defined as the butterflies and moths, which are large enough to be of interest to collectors. <laughs> and there's also microlepidoptera, which is the numerous moths, which are mostly smaller than those of interest to collectors. I didn't know that collectors were so sizist. 
Yeah. yeah. You would have thought that the small ones might be more precious. Yeah. Mm, if they're all an eighteenth of an inch long, though, it's a bit tiresome having to collect them and you lose them in your pocket. And, yeah. You, know. <laughs> you could lie about your collection. Look at my incredible selection. <laughs> I know you can't see them, but they're pretty yeah. extraordinary. <laughs> the, uh, the Mile High Club in the OED is defined as an imaginary association of people who have had sexual intercourse on an aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> that's great that is really good um, that's written by someone who's tried and failed <laughs> <laughs> um, I've only got one more word that I really like yeah which, uh, babble avant and it uh, means one who makes feeble jokes wow. yeah that's good yeah. why'd you bring that up yeah. just thought you r- knew you would be talking to us today. <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact, and that is Andrew Hunter Murray. My fact is that to prepare for China's National Day, 100,000 pigeons have anal security checks to make sure they're not carrying anything suspicious. Um. <laughs> <laughs> like rocks from Australia? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, China's National Day is uh, the 1st of October, and last year, the celebration involved releasing 100,000 pigeons in Tiananmen Square, and they all fly up and fly around, and it's very beautiful. And this is according to, uh, I think, the People's Daily, uh, the sort of government-sponsored newspaper. Mm-hmm. And a security officer said that they all have to be checked and under their wings and their tail feathers and even their bottoms. And they are then loaded into sealed vehicles and delivered to the square where they are checked a second time. <laughs> wow. And then sealed in the cages for, before the release. And supposedly the, they were all checked at the Yuatan City Sports Centre in Beijing and the whole process was videotaped. So someone has a tape of this event happening. Wow! Yeah. Are pigeons a big worry? Are they prone to treachery in China? <laughs> <Are> they... <laughs> I have no idea. Well, we, we have covered on the podcast before that they were used uh, to smuggle messages. and Wasn't it to steal grain as well? Yes, yeah. and to steal they grain. They used to steal grain from the imperial granary. Yeah, you fly them in, they eat the grain, you fly them out, and then you squeeze them, and they have to throw up I the grain. I think you feed them like alum or something and they throw it up ah, okay. squeeze them <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, yeah so this is this is something that happens is this so how many pigeons are they releasing on their national day a hundred thousand okay wow i know that china is the military has been training up pigeons has been training up ten thousand pigeons uh to use as a reserve pigeon army so that would uh, like provide com- military communications in the event of an attack and in the event of an evasion apparently they want pigeons to carry stuff back and forth although they can, they can only carry a hundred grams of stuff i think so but if you yeah. put a, if you put a something on a usb you can communicate a lot of stuff oh, really yes. good point. in 100 grams that's yeah. true really good point um so yeah i wonder if those pigeons they were releasing were was that part of the training yeah, but the interesting thing is, you know when you release d- pigeons and doves at weddings and things yeah. like that, they're homing pigeons normally. Oh. So they fly around, and when they're fluttering around beautifully around the venue or whatever, they're actually just getting their bearings. As it, Where the hell am I? And then they shoot off in one particular direction. That is them heading home. That's a good like business model, isn't it? It's a really good business model. Because yeah. like, they're reusable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you don't need to transport them home. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, someone who released 100 white pigeons very recently, turns out as a massive pigeon lover, Mike Tyson. Oh, yeah. Really? Really? No idea. Mike Tyson loves pigeons. He actually says that the reason he became a boxer was as a result of one of his pigeons, because his pigeon was killed by a local uh, bully, 
and the local bully really like mauled one of his favorite pigeons and so he got into a fight with him and that's where he discovered he was a great fighter imagine killing a pigeon and finding out it belonged to mike tyson oh my god (laughs) (laughs) by the time Um, he didn't know that he was mike tyson mike tyson didn't even know he was mike tyson imagine that discovery you don't want to be the one he discovers it on (laughs) (laughs) exactly pablo picasso as well he was a uh he was a pigeon fancier we'll see yep and he named yeah named his daughter paloma and Paloma is the Spanish for pigeon. Oh, really? Wow. So he named his daughter Pigeon. But he also named one of his pigeons daughter. <laughs> and then it got very confusing when his will was read. <laughs> <laughs> so pigeons are so good at getting home. And we don't know how, really. But we do know they have a, mount- they have a little bit of magnetic iron ore in their beaks. Cool. And that helps them to sense the Earth's magnetic field. And they also use their eyesight for the final stages of a journey. And we know this because of a guy called Charlie Walcott, who he has spent 40 years attaching radio transmitters to pigeons and then following them in a single-engine plane to see them navigate and to see them go. You can imagine this terrified pigeon saying, he's still coming after us. (laughs) It sounds like that old cartoon with Dastardly and Muttley in it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And he puts frosted contact lenses on pigeons and then lets them fly home just to test whether they use their eyesight. And they get most of the way towards home using the magnetic field and other things that we don't know about. But then they, towards the end, they got confused. because, And that's how we know that they need visual landmarks. Just for the end? Like having an autopilot on for the main yeah. flight oh, yeah, and, and then, then for the landing? Back, yeah. yeah, basically. But, but they're also using... Um, some pigeons have been found to be observing the use of roads and roundabouts. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. So a pigeon will be flying above a road. It'll hit a roundabout. And if it was going to go left, it won't go left until it's gone around the roundabout <laughs> and then takes the takes the appropriate How uh, does it know which way off? to go around the roundabout? Because I struggle if I'm driving in Italy, for instance, knowing <laughs> which way to go around the roundabout. <laughs> Maybe so they, they just avoid be. Italy. <laughs> but what I mean is they must be following the cars, right? Yeah, possibly. The way the cars yeah. go yeah. around. Oh, maybe. Maybe it's the heat of the cars or something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, dove releases, they date back to the Middle Ages because they used to have religious plays and um, Noah would release a dove uh-huh. from the oh, ark. Of course, yeah. yeah. And suppo- I read this in a book about medieval theatre. To stage the bit where the dove comes back, they'd either use a dummy bird or they'd just attach a string to the real bird. <laughs> just sort of put it back. <laughs> oh, my God. It's not going to look that natural, is it? When you're pulling this flapping frantically dove and it naturally returns. <laughs> and it's got the olive branch sellotape to it. <laughs> um, pigeons are one of only three birds, aren't they, that uh, produce milk for their offspring. Um, wow. So pigeons, emperor penguins, I think, and flamingos, um, and they produce it in the... Uh, is it the crop? It's called crop milk, and the crop is like this pouch in the back of their throat, I think, where they, few days before they give birth, they start making this milk, and they sometimes stop eating to make sure that there's not indigestible grain stuck in the milk that the the baby can't digest. But I really like the fact that they sort of adjust the milk and turn it into baby food as the squab gets a little bit older. Is it it actual milk? I don't think it is. I'm not sure if it even contains lactose. It might do. But could you get pigeon cheese, is what I'm saying. Right. (laughs) I read that the milk, in in quotation marks, uh, from pigeons contains more protein and fat than both human and cows. Oh, yeah, it does. So if we did get a cheese... Unhealthy cheese. Mm. Maybe that's why we haven't done it. <laughs> just... I can think of a whole range of reasons why we haven't made cheese from pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> I, get a, I get a bit iffy about goat's cheese. <laughs> Never mind pigeon cheese. <laughs> the Pope has had to... Because he often releases doves. He's had to replace them now with balloons... <laughs> <laughs> because birds kept attacking the doves. 
Ah. So in uh, 2014, he did it, and um, a seagull and a crow attacked the doves very fiercely. And it's children letting them go, so it's immensely traumatising for the children as well. Um, And then also in 2013, this is when we had Pope Benedict, that release uh, was also ruined when a seagull attacked a dove and pinned it against a window pane. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then the year before that, uh, he was releasing two doves, and one of them perched beside the Pope and didn't move. And then the second dove immediately flew back into his apartment, and the article I was reading about it just said, to his credit, Pope Benedict seemed to shout, Mamma Mia, in surprise. <laughs> so this was Pope Benedict, because yeah. Pope Benedict was German, right? It's like he's moved to the Vatican and picked up the lingo. Well, you know what they say? When in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> you know that all, all RAF bomber planes used to carry a pigeon as standard? How come? They crashed in the oh. sea. They would release a pigeon, and they would attach the coordinates of where they had crashed into the sea. And loads and loads of pilots and, and other you know uh, crew on the planes were saved. Were they really? Yeah, yeah. That actually That's, That's so really cool. cool. They, they were on. They, they, I can't believe this. They were on submarines. Wow. And some paratroopers had a pigeon in a sling on their chest. Wow. Yeah. A lot of these pigeons were given the Dickon Medal, um, which is an award for, like, brave animals um, by the PDSA. Uh, And I think more pigeons have had that award than anyone. Yeah. I have a list of medal-winning pigeons in the Second World War. Okay. They included Tyke, Gustav, Paddy, Billy, Mary, Princess, Commando, Scotch Lass... And William of Orange. <laughs> was Commando the naked one? <laughs> <laughs> it also sounds like William of Orange has got on the wrong list of your things. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a list of um, Kings of England, <laughs> which is Henry VIII, James II, and Winky. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said during the course of this podcast, you can get us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James at Eggshaped, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, and you can also get us on at QI Podcast on Twitter, and you can also go to no such thing as a fish.com where we have all of our previous episodes. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.